coming up on Life is a Festival. The most helpful thing for my whole experience of depression, well, was probably meditation, but actually it was absolutely meditation. But the most positive reframing in, in my entire experience was, this is my teacher. And it is a difficult class to take. And I don't know how it's going to go, but I know that it's a teacher. I feel like if a depression comes in and it's there and you're going to be with it for a period of time, and you know, depression can be very scary, particularly if it leads to ideation around self-harm, but to recognize that like I am on a magical adventure and right now I'm being pulled into the underworld and I'm being pulled into the underworld for a reason. And so I, so I get down on my knees and I bow to this teacher and I'm just like, oh God, I don't want to do this, but I guess I have to. And I haven't had a major depressive episode since 2015. And I was only in it for about four or five months. So it was like not so bad. But I'd say that the separation, anxiety, and distress that I'm feeling in this moment is a totally different thing than depression, but it's definitely like a pretty, pretty rocky ride. But again, teacher, yeah. you know, portal opportunity. There's, I, I just can't think about it otherwise than that because it would just be too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Oh, my friends. Oh, my fellow travelers. Do you like when I call you fellow travelers? I feel like you do, because I feel like I'd like that, because I feel like I'm your fellow traveler too, right? We're all just walking each other home. Well, I've been doing a lot of walking lately. Um, (laughs) Ever so often, I like to reshare an interview that I do with another podcaster, kind of as a way of keeping you all up to date on my journey and what I'm learning and what I'm thinking. And these past three months have been quite a doozy. So I thought, why not share a lovely interview I got to do with Eric White on his EW podcast. And about three months ago, I parted ways with a dear, dear love who I now refer to as my erstwhile beloved. We are very close still, and we've been in this process of separation over this time with so many lessons. My God, I mean... If you are not learning a ton when you part ways with someone you love, then you're leaving money on the table. Is that the right expression? Well, this interview uh, took place while I was in Seattle, and this is just before I spent a weekend fasting and solo camping on Orcas Island off of Washington. Um, So this is right before that. So what you're getting today is kind of a little snapshot of that moment. And it was right in the middle of the big waves of grasping and, 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 and suffering that happened in a breakup. I promise it's not as modeling as all that on the show. Eric wanted to talk to me about festivals and how festivals had made my life better. What ended up happening was really a deep dive on mental health because Eric has had his own struggles with depression as 
I have had. And if you've listened to the show, you know this comes up a lot. Um, I actually did an episode called Dancing with the Black Dog um, with my then psychiatrist, Dr. David Rabin. So if you want more mental health conversation, you can dip back into that one. So on the show, we start a little bit with podcasting tips. We talk a little bit about festivals, what festivals might be like after COVID. And then we just go a full-on faceplant into deep talk of mental health. Um, We talk about abundance and scarcity mentality. We talk about attachment wounds. We talk about one of the big things for me that has been massive in my life is how to see depression, anxiety, these difficulties within ourselves as teachers and how to approach them with uh, a kind of humble acceptance that we're here to learn. Um, And so we talk a lot about that. And then we kind of swing it back into that lovely festival chat by talking about how Burning Man especially and festivals generally have been such good medicine for my mental health. Now at the very end of the show, there's a little disconnect and that disconnect ends up, as they so often are, being the most raw and special teaching moment of the whole episode. And I'm so grateful that Eric decided to keep that one in because I think it's I think it's really special how we, how we muddled our way through that one and, and didn't run away. So anyway, that's kind of the arc of what you're about to listen to over the next 90 minutes. And I definitely, definitely recommend checking out the EW podcast. Eric has tapped me for a little mentorship as he's been building this this show. And I'm so proud of the work he's done and his dedication to his process. And Eric, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for sticking with it. Thanks for asking penetrating questions and giving me an opportunity to share what is most profound in my journey with mental health. And for those of you listening, we are all struggling with some version of trauma, some version of, 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 of scarcity. We're all kind of muddling through this. So I hope you find some healing nuggets or at least a little entertainment along the way. And thanks for being part of the Life is a Festival community. And if you'd like a little bit more, I'd love for you to join us in the Life is a Festival Facebook group where we talk more about making our lives more like a festival. So without further ado, here is me <laughs> on um, Eric White's magnificent EW podcast. So Eric, tell me about what we're doing today. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on because, um, you know, obviously we're going through a really crazy time in this country. There's a lot of, uh, just yelling at each other. It seems like, and a lot of How division. About them debates. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I could only make it like 30 minutes in dude. It was horrible. Awful. Awful. Yeah. Disgraceful. But I wanted to have you on specifically because I know your background in festivals and your podcast, Life is a Festival. Obviously, one of the themes of it is like uh, taking that festival spirit and applying it to everyday life. And so I was just curious to have a conversation that kind of looks at what festival, what happens in festivals that isn't happening in society that maybe we need to bring, bring back into the mix to get us through these crazy times. Yeah. And I kind of have like a little thing written to read whenever we get started here with my specific goal, but that's the gist of it. Cool. And I know that your podcast has somewhat of a focus on, on well-being and, and mental health. Is that accurate? It did. I am in the process right now of kind of opening it up. The previous focus of it was kind of putting some weird pressure on me because I do, I do care about that because of my own experience, but I 
don't, it's not something that I consume all the time every day, you know? So my podcast, I'm opening it up to be about all the things that I'm interested in basically. And so society is one of those things, science, history. So I'm just kind of following things that are of interest to me, all with a theme of like better understanding past and present will help us have a better future is, is Ooh, the basic I like idea. That. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I found a similar thing with life as a festival because I came out of global festival culture with my work at Fest 300. And I had all these amazing uh, connections around the world of these really interesting people. And at the time I was going to write a book and I was like, I'll write this book that's about how to like use festival culture to make your life better, like better living through partying kind of thing. Yeah. And and turns out that I hated writing the book. I loved talking about writing a book. That was like, cool. I'm like writing a book. But I hated the, it was very lonely and very, it was very oriented towards perfectionism to like do that. And I, I launched the podcast as a way of kind of taking my existing community and kind of building an audience for the book. And it turned out that the podcast was just way more fun and went a lot further. And I'm, I'm definitely reaching way more people through my podcast than I would have through publishing a book and then trying to market it. Mm-hmm. And I basically cover everything that I wanted to do. But to your point and your experience, I started with Life as a Festival and it was like a festival podcast. But I found that limiting as well. And I also am like, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, it's, festivals isn't really the point. The point is like that joie de vie that we experience at festivals, that kind of collective effervescence, which is the uh, sociologist Emile Durkheim's expression for this kind of like together transforming, bubbling up, I- expressing ourselves. It's, I, I want that, but that is in so many other places. And so my podcast has kind of evolved from Life is a Festival. I feel like we're already just jumping into... Yeah, no, I'm fine. Yeah, we'll just keep here? going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm just super grateful that you wanted to, were able to get on here and spend some time with me because yeah, your podcast is... I love it. I you know listen to it and your style of interviewing and just your presence has been pretty informative for me and like getting to my stride with my projects. So thank you. I appreciate that. What, what is it when you say the style of interviewing, what is it about the style of interviewing that you've managed or managed that you've been able to integrate into um, what you're doing? What's like been most helpful for you? Just your curiosity, man, the way that you are, your complete presence in the interview um, and the way that you ask follow-up questions. And it doesn't, that's something that I'm still working at getting better at is um, being really attentive to what the guest is saying and asking questions about what they're saying before moving on to the next thing that I want to talk about. And so that's just one aspect of how you go through your interviews that I, I look up to for sure. Oh, thank you. Well, what I do, how I do that is that I I do typically, sometimes I'm like a little bit lazy, I'll be honest, but typically I do a lot of research. I create a roadmap and I have my roadmap, but I never really ask questions along the roadmap. I just have it so I kind of know the different places I want to go. And then whenever I'm listening to my guest, I'm, I'm like listening for the kind of segues and mm. triggers into those other spaces I know I want to go. And I find that it makes it more conversational when someone's like they're talking about something and I have this note that I want to make sure we talk about psychedelic integration and they're talking about how they've done the ceremony and then they started doing a meditation practice. And I'm like, oh, was that kind of like a formal attempt at integration or was that something that naturally happened? Like I can kind of hook it into where I wanted uh. to go. And, you know, I, it's actually something that I, that I, pay a lot of attention to because I feel like it creates it creates a lot of vulnerability because when you're being interviewed and your interviewer is asking you questions you 
are kind of starting again at at a question. So mm-hmm. it's like, now I want to talk about your childhood. I understand that your father, you know, left when you were a little boy, blah, blah, blah. What do you want to say? And so my, at least my feeling about that is that when the interviewer is like initiating a new question, you're kind of like, okay, I'm being interviewed. Whereas right. if you can get to what you're trying to talk about without it really being like a new thing, it has more of a flow of conversation, at least in my experience. No, that makes sense. Cause then the guest doesn't have to recalibrate their thinking. It's like they can just keep that ball rolling downhill without trying to stop it and readjust. Right. So I could just give you podcast advice all day because I love doing that <laughs> shit, but um, that's probably not what we're here for. So why don't you get the ball rolling and we'll just see what we shall see. Cool. Yeah. So I'm just going to kind of state the reason I know I had already stated it to you, but I just put it a little more plainly. I have something written that I would like to just kind of read here to get us started as per my goal for this conversation. So yeah, in this moment where, you know, it, it does feel like there's something missing to me. It feels like we're all kind of losing our minds. And at the same time, it seems like we've lost touch with the things that make us a community. It doesn't feel like we're all Americans, you know, in fact, it, a lot of people have shame to be an American right now. And there's not that cohesive sense of society. And I wanted you on because uh, you're something of a festival veteran. And in my experience at good festivals, that sense of community is strong. That's like what makes a good festival a good festival. So the goal that I had in mind today um, was to kind of gain some insight from you about what good things from festivals are missing in society and how we can perhaps integrate those to make it out of 2020 sane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just say, first of all, that we're not going to make it out of 2020 sane. <laughs> that ship has well and truly sailed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of the breakdown to break through, I think that what we can hope for is that we use this catalyzing time to, to envision a better future and that we actually move into something properly new and not cling to the old ways of doing things because there's a lot about the old ways that weren't working that have been revealed, particularly in terms of like s- systemic fragility and, and sort of more complex, th- complex system stuff that's not really my purview, but there's some things that, that we have the opportunity to change right now. And I think that the longing for congregation that you're highlighting here is can be met with a kind of creativity that could, you know, innovate certain things that wouldn't have happened otherwise. An example is like the Burning Man multiverse experience. Mm. So I think there's opportunities for innovation into new ways of congregating and new understandings of the need to congregate that may, I personally think, and I'm sure this will be a question that comes up later, but like, I think that the festivals of the future will necessarily be more participatory, for example. Like, we long so much for this connection with others that when a, a, a smorgasbord of, a, of, of opportunities are offered to us, we're going to be less interested, I believe, less interested in the kind of spectacle of a Lollapalooza than we are in the kind of co-created participatory community of something like Desert Hearts. And when you say participatory, can you just define that a little bit? Yeah. So a participatory festival is a festival that you have the experience of co-creating. So it's not just that there's like, say, interactive art, although interactive art is kind of like a step in that direction, but that there is a kind of community ownership of the festival, that the festival itself is, is a temporary community and that you show up 
to be part of the festival, to be part of the spectacle. And that can be many things. It can be how you dress. It can be, you know, volunteering. It can be, you know, building art and bringing art. But the festivals, I mean, the most participatory festival is Burning Man because it's entirely participatory and it's in, intended to be a decommodified space. It doesn't always happen that way, but it's intended to be. Um, and so these kind of hybrid sort of Burning Man-esque festivals, some call them transformational festivals, like a lightning in a bottle or something like that. They have some of that like energy of like you go and you create your camp and you have some kind of offering. And as you build a relationship with the festival, you may then want to volunteer or you may have some art that you want to bring and you start to have this kind of relationship. And so over time, uh, you end up being part of the creation of the festival and Mm -hmm. that's properly participatory. Whereas something like, you know, you know, a Walmart style festival where it's just kind of like out of the box presented to you, you go to kind of consume and receive. It's more of a passive experience. And you might, you know, take some acid and have a nice time. You might meet some people. You might have some. It's not it's not cut and dry. It's not that you can't have a transformative experience at a festival like this or that festivals like this are, you know, absolute failures at the the glorious community aspects of festivals. But when the festival is participatory, as a sort of mindset of the organizers and the people involved, it kind of has emergent properties to it that are not as available in a more transactional space. So it's, you know, what emerges when you wire up a bunch of anxious monkeys brains together? Like what happens out of that? The sum is greater than the total of its parts. Burning Man most especially, but I think in some of these other festivals that are similar, we have a kind of, there's this possibility of a kind of group mind, a kind of ongoing collaborative art project of the different vibes and energies of the people involved. Yeah, I love that. And one of the things that first comes to mind is just the fact that to have a more participatory experience, you need whoever is holding that space to encourage that, right? That's not something that can just be, is that something that can be done organically by the attendees at something that you mentioned, like a Walmart out of box experience? Can people show up there and make it participatory or is it up to the space holder to create that, that relationship? Can you make the festival participatory? Not necessarily, but can you can, can you make an environment that feels as I'm describing? I mean, absolutely, you can. You go to, you know, a camping festival that is otherwise pretty commercial and transactional, but you build your camp and make it magical, and you put a little pineapple in front as the international symbol of hospitality, and your neighbors are like, "Oh, it's pineapple camp," and they're like stopping by to say hello. You're creating a sort of like more participatory enclave within that broader festival. I, I think that it has a lot to do with um, the transactionalism of, of the space. If everything is commodified, if everything is bought and sold, you tend to have more transactional relationships. When, when you're more just kind of creating for the fun of it and sharing for the fun of it, that's more participatory and involves in, inviting more participation. And you can definitely do that anywhere, but I don't know that you necessarily would say that that would translate to changing the whole culture of the festival unless i guess everybody showed up and did that um but people have to kind of in many cases with our culture as transactional as it is people have to be acculturated to this idea of of kind of gifting and sharing and opening their doors to others but there's some there's some of that energy that i think permeates most festival experiences yeah but in society like it is 
it seems purely transactional, you know, and maybe, I mean, it is participatory in the sense that we as citizens make society run, right? We are the ones who make sure that things work tomorrow, but there, whenever, whenever the return to us doesn't feel as much as we're putting into it, then it no longer feels as though we're participants. It feels as though we're, for lack of a better word, slaves or something like that. And I, I think that that's something in terms of like the Burning Man experience, people are putting so much into it and they're getting, like, what are they getting back from from the festival or from the environment that makes it so encouraging to be a participant? Well, this actually gets down to like the core of my whole life as a festival ethos, which is you always give as much as you can into the pot. And you try to encourage others to do that because then you're raising the threshold of abundance for everyone. And so what you get back is an abundant environment. And it's hard because it's a bit of the, there's some, it's, it's not the prisoner's dilemma, but there's maybe it's tragedy of the commons. There's some sort of thing about this where like everybody's waiting for somebody else to do the work. Maybe it's tragedy of the commons, but um, you just, you give and create abundance and then you encourage others to give and create abundance. And the reward of that is that you live in an abundant environment. And an, an environment of a, abundance can ultimately feel really transcendent. And I, I just would flag that obviously there's a lot of privilege involved in this. So we're, you know, it's sort of an enclave of abundance amidst a world of disparate fortunes. But um, if you can create a, a, a vibe of abundance around you, that abundance will ultimately come back to you, whether you're at a festival or not. So like, I have a policy where if I have something fabulous and someone else tries it on and it looks better on them than me, then I give it to them. Mm -hmm. And I don't get anything back from that. But every time I do that, it's a fun of it's it's a fun experience of like, especially in a group setting, like, oh my God, that looks so good on you. I guess it's yours now. And then people are like, and people love that. And there's a sense of abundance, like, oh, well, he just gave away that fur coat. We're in an environment where that can happen. We're in an environment where that abundance is possible. So I think there's an aspect of, a, of creating an environment of abundance that is part of it. And again, just to flag the fact that obviously there's there's a threshold of privilege that one has to have crossed in order to be able to share in that way. And that's one of the ills of our world and why, you know, modern capitalism makes these more transactional relationships and makes these scarcity mentalities. But I do feel like festivals can create an experience of abundance that you can bring into your life if you're lucky enough to have more to give. Yeah. And you're talking about economic inequality there in terms of yeah. privilege. Yeah. But wouldn't you say that, that even if you, I, I guess, I wouldn't know because I'm, you know, there's a certain level of privilege that I have in my life with my employment and my family having set the, set the way for me, but there's still a way to participate in that though, if you are not privileged, right? Like you can still be a part of that. You're not excluded from it necessarily. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I'm, when I'm talking about abundance, I actually tend to kind of like think about it in terms of materials and in terms of resources and, and therefore privilege. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you can participate and you can also give a lot that doesn't cost anything. I mean, you can give a lot of hugs. You can give a lot of compliments. You you absolutely can create abundance that is non-material. I think that often there's a lot of material abundance that's going on in festivals. And so I think about that through the lens of privilege. But yeah, you can absolutely participate with just your ideas and your hands and your smiles and like what what is available to you. So yeah, it's not, 
you're not limited to sharing in a way of material that therefore creates abundance. You can actually create abundance in just vibe and in positivity and in many, many things that people are actually hungry for that have nothing to do with, with your actual privilege. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a certain kind of like, maybe there's like a mental health privilege that comes into there where there's some kind of, you know, some people it's harder to, to, you know, to show up and connect in that way. Some people are more introverted, for example. So it's not like it's a total even playing field exactly, but we all have gifts to give. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would maybe push back even on the mental health thing because I, whenever I first got into the festival community through Desert Arts, I was super depressed and suicidal and not doing very well at all. Um, and how I kind of got into the community was through my video work. And so that was something that I was giving to the community. And at the same time, I was taking kind of a healing experience for myself. And it wouldn't have, had it not been for that gig working with Desert Hearts and doing video, um, I'd very likely still be depressed. I don't know I would have found the tools. So that's, I would just push back on that and that whenever I was in that state, it did feel as though I had nothing to give, but I was in retrospect giving something. So I think that there's a space for people who are, you know, not necessarily well to still provide something to the community that maybe they don't view as valuable, but that someone else might. Absolutely. And, and I think we're kind of talking about two things, which is one, what is actually being given and the actual participation that's occurring. And then also the separately from that, the mentality of either abundance or scarcity. And you speak of depression. I've had three major depressive episodes in my life. I have mental health, um, opportunities that arise from time to time. Um, I've learned to see depression and anxiety as teachers. And so it's definitely been part of my journey to have those passengers along the ride. And I think one of the most pernicious aspects of, of depression is the, the desolation that of that experience, because your brain is just not functioning in such a way that you see the positive or mm -hmm. you see what you have to give. So your default is such a scarcity and it's, it's, it's such a scarcity. Like I, I I'm not even worth, I have no worth, you know, what can I possibly give? And so, you know, to tie it back to what I was saying earlier, when I was saying kind of privilege in regards to mental health, I mean that not in terms of you can't participate if you are struggling with mental health by no means, but it's a lot more challenging to lean into an attitude of abundance when you feel like you have nothing to give in that space. So I wanted to flag kind of like that there is a privilege to having mental wellness in the context of participation, because it, it's just philosophically easier to align yourself with like, I'm just going to go around and give like really great advice all day. And I'm going to feel and that'll be up creating abundance. That's a lot harder to do when you're trying to drag yourself up off the floor. Yeah. And it can also create a feeling as though you're just taking, you know, that's something that I experienced a ton of was feeling as though I was stealing or something like I was pulling one over on these people whenever I was depressed and unable to see the worth that I was bringing to my community. Eric, let me ask you, what was, what's, what was the arc of your mental health journey? Just, to, just for context. So when did you first experience depression? How long did it last? And, and what was the experience of coming out of it for you? Yeah, so I was um, 16 whenever the whole situation started for me. Um, I had an uncle that was murdered um, in the Dominican oh Republic. God. Yeah. Um, and I'm so sorry. 
Yeah, it's all good, man. Appreciate that. But yeah, he was um, murdered in Dominican Republic. Um, and it kind of changed my family dynamic at home. Um, and my relationship with my mom kind of took a hit, started drinking, went to college and was just the blackout king in college. Graduated from college, super depressed. I, I had tried to see therapists in college and had no success. I didn't really understand that something was wrong with me. I had no idea what was going on. And so for several years after college, I kind of just traveled around drinking a lot, feeling sorry for myself. And yeah, it was when I met the Desert Hearts guys and started doing video for them that I met my partner, Lauren, who I'm still with today. And she kind of helped me realize that, you know, you've got something going on. This isn't normal. Found a good therapist that kind of opened the door for me. And then 2016, pretty recently, I had a, it was during super flu at Desert Hearts. I had taken some psilocybin and I was, I had shot video for the festival um, that year and years prior. But during this set, I was taking a break, took some psilocybin. And just in that moment, a thousand different pieces all clicked for me at once. And it was, it was one of the most still to this day, one of the most overwhelming, joyous experiences to just, I had this sudden rush of empathy for my mom and understanding mm. what she was going through. And it was just like, I don't know, everything that had happened suddenly made sense getting to see it from outside of myself in a way, if that makes sense. And so from there, it was just continuing to do the work with this new understanding and uh, still get sad, but much better, <laughs> much better today for sure. Are you aware that I'm working in psychedelic medicine at the moment? I am. Yeah. The Maya, yeah. Maya health is it? Maya health. Yeah. Yeah. That's why. That's why. I mean, <clears throat> the, do you, are you, are you up? I, I assume you're probably somewhat up to date on like the science around depression and psychedelics and like why you had the experience you had. Yes. I, well, I'm not, I'm not as knowledgeable as you on it, but I've read like Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. I've done some some other readings here and there, some podcasts. Um, so I I have a base knowledge. So I'm I'm not trying to derail the podcast, but <laughs> no, this is this, this is goes. Um, yeah no, but this is this is interesting to me because what you've just described is kind of the quintessential story of psychedelic healing because as you said quite eloquently, that there was this moment of these things coming together, your mind changed in that moment. And that's that's kind of like the switching off, not really switching off, but the reduced energy in the default mode network, mm -hmm. which is the default way in which your brain operates. And then the ability to make kind of new neural connections and kind of really just change your perspective. But the key to what you just said that matters so much is you're like, and then I did the work. If you don't do the work, it doesn't stick. Mm -hmm. You can't just go have the hallelujah psilocybin or ketamine or ayahuasca or whatever it is, you don't just get that. It's actually the work. And then the work over time is what, like I said earlier in the conversation, like I consider depression a teacher. When depression comes back in my life, it's like, wake up, pay attention. Something has, something has slipped here. And there's some lesson for you to learn. There's something that needs to change. There's, so for example, right now I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety because um, I'm going through a, a very painful separation that's triggering the echoes of a major attachment wound from my early childhood. And that anxiety, you know, it's pretty overwhelming at times. And an earlier me <clears throat> would have done anything I can to get as far away from it as possible, i.e., you know, blackout king in college. I had a similar, <laughs> I had a similar kind of time. Now it's like, okay, this anxiety is actually of my body. It's of me. 
It's telling me something. It's telling me that something is not okay. It's being offered up to be healed. And so now, instead of like, how can I get this anxiety away from me? It's more like, how can I listen to it, be aware of what it's trying to teach me, and actually show up full power for the healing that's being offered through the portal of this incredibly distressing, anxious feeling? Mm-hmm. You know, breath work, meditation, yoga, solitude, some shit I haven't even thought of yet because, of course, I wouldn't think about it until I'm in distress. So some other shit. I'm, a, I, I'm, a, I'm about to go solo camping to just like, I'm going to give some of this up to nature, see what, see what happens there. But there's a joyfulness, and here's where we'll swing back into the, into the festival yeah, we can conversation. Stay here too. It's all good. Um, I'm, I'm good. For me, life as a festival has increasingly evolved to more of this stoic and Pythagorean idea of life as a festival. So Pythagoras initially, and then later a Stoic called Epictetus. Epictetus? I only read it. I don't know how it's pronounced. Talked about the allegory of life as a festival. And basically, the allegory is essentially that at a festival, there's different people show up for different things. There's There's the people who are competing, let's say like in this case, kind of festival a la Olympic Games kind of thing. There's people competing and trying to win. There's people coming to like buy and sell oxen or whatever it is. But then there's some people who come for the festival, for whatever it is, and they want to know about it and they want to see it and they want to feel it and they want to participate and they want to be involved in it. And so life as a festival isn't, life is a celebration all the time. It's totally not a celebration all the time. 2020 is not a celebration. At the same time, it's so fucking informative. The way that it makes those of us lucky enough not to be on the front lines, the way it makes us slow down and stop and let things bubble up inside of us. So for me, anxiety and particularly like the separation distress I'm feeling in the wake of this separate in this this partnership is not something that is bad that needs to be escaped from. It is part of the festival to be engaged with and to actually in a way dance with to play with, to be like, what transformation are you beckoning me towards? What dark alleyway of the festival that I'm scared to go in is going to take me around a corner into some crazy jazz carnival tent that I never would have gone into if I'd, if I'd chosen to be afraid and stay with what was easy and safe for me. So mental health, man, it's an interesting journey. And those of us who have had the enormous grace and good fortune of the kind of psychedelic experience you've described and who get to kind of pull back and see the bigger picture in that way, we're just so blessed because Mm -hmm. then we can pull back and see that bigger picture in so many other ways, you know? And we had the intensity, the enormity of a major depression or anxiety. We've had these difficult things. Then when we're like dealing with the day-to-day banalities and annoyances of life, we can also pull back and be like, where's... What am I going to learn here? How am I going to transform here? And mm-hmm. so I try to live that way. Does whenever you do something like a solo camping trip, do you feel as though you're working on stuff from your past still from well in your past? Or is it more of a, you mentioned getting ready to go through a portal. I don't know if that's before we'll start playing this podcast or not, but you mentioned um, looking at it as a transform, a transformative period. So in that solo camping trip, are you doing work that needed to be done in the past, or are you simply preparing yourself for what's next? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, 
So I don't do a lot of like, I camp at festivals, but I'm not like a, a rugged camping man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's not super on brand for me. And I'm planning to do a weekend where I'll be fasting. I'm going to go up to Orca Island outside of Seattle, where I'm here visiting my brother, and I'm going to fast, and I'm going to be in nature. And when I first conceptualized this, it came out of like some pretty deep pain, where I was just like, I am taking on an initiation. I am going to feel this suffering as deeply as I can, and then I'm going to just push my way through it. And thank God my thinking has evolved, um, <laughs> because... Uh, what I'm doing right now, I'm not working through something. I'm feeling and healing. And I am, as I mentioned, it's a, it's, it's a separation distress, quite potent, that is so potent because of the echoes of attachment trauma as a child. So are you familiar with the attachment theory? Yeah. Yeah. So I have what's called the anxious attachment personality, and that's based on experiences from my childhood. What I've been, what I've learned, and shout out to my friend Zia, who don't tell anyone, she's an astrologer, <laughs> and I'm like getting it. I'm like, I'm like on a bit of that ride, which is super not my vibe. Astrology is not my vibe, but she's been so so on point with everything she shared with me. So I've been like leaning into that. But she basically, what she expressed is that, you know. There's a natural pain when you let go of someone you love, of course. But the intense anxiety and kind of trauma-like response that happens for someone with an anxious attachment personality during a breakup is actually not about the person that's left or has been left. There's grieving for that person, for, for sure. But the, the intensity of that is actually an echo of a childhood wound. Mm -hmm. but, but the thing about it is that it's not it's not old work from childhood that you're going back to. You actually are doing the work now. So do you know the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk? I've never read it, but I know of it, yeah. Okay, and I'll give a shout out to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, which I do for Maya. I talked to Bessel on that podcast. Oh, um, cool. And we talked a lot. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, we talked a lot about trauma. And one thing that he says is that trauma is, exists in our reactions, not in our memories. Hmm. Right. So that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. So the work we do, the trauma work that we do is actually not about, can I th remember what happened and cry about it? And that's sad that that happened. I mean, and I've done therapy that way a lot in my life. And I think I'm not saying there's not a place for that approach, but a lot of the work that we do to heal past trauma is by observing the reactions in our system, in our nervous system, that's really an echo of that trauma. So this incredible distress around separation, the need to reconnect with uh, an attachment that that you know is it's no longer it's it's no longer time for that connection or that partnership. You know, maybe maybe for this moment, maybe you know forever. I'm still in that in, in that place. Will it happen again? Will it not? But it's mm -hmm. not it's not it's not about this moment. It's an echo of the past. But you don't go back to the past to work with it. You work with it in this moment. And so the way that I'm working with this in this moment is that when that intensity arises, and it's in my nervous system, my, my adult nervous system is experiencing what my child nervous system couldn't quite handle in present tense, but I experience it and I ride it and I use yoga and I use breath work and I do a lot of like loving my like little guy inside and taking <laughs> care of him 
and yeah. saying nice things to him. I, 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 the other morning I like danced and like wept to God. And I th- that's also not on brand for me to be like weeping <laughs> to God, but I, you know, I'm engaging in the present moment as a way of healing that trauma. And I'm recognizing that the trauma is, it's an echo from the past that gets to work out in a new way this time. So the little Amen, the little Amen inside who needs someone to come for him, I'm going to come for him. I can come for him now. I've learned how to do that. I've learned mm-hmm. how to come for him. I've learned how to talk to him. I've learned how to like to love him. And I've learned how not to let him interact with the world in a way that's going to hurt or disappoint him. So when my reactions happen, I don't go and just ping pong around the world with them. I don't desperately reach out to my erstwhile beloved, take the pain away. I soothe him. I learn to soothe him. I teach him to trust me. And then if I do want to communicate with my former partner who is and will always be a dear friend of mine, I do that from an aligned place. And that very process itself is a kind of healing of the trauma. So I'm rewriting the story that that little boy won't be taken care of or even that that little boy needs anything but me to show up for him when he's having his most desperate moments. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like... What I'm hearing from you is that these these uh, whenever we get into depressions or we our inner child feels threatened and wants to act in certain ways, it's reacting to something that is in the past, but we need to deal with the reaction in the moment. So it's like you're trying to reset a habit almost that has been set in yourself from before that is responding to something present in your environment or your life. Yeah, and and more than even just a habit, like like a a nervous system patterning. Right. So let me let me take a moment to say, like, I'm not a therapist. I am not deeply studied on these topics behind beyond my own experience. I'm deeply studied on them in my own experience because I've seen a lot of therapists and I've done a lot of like stuff with this. But my understanding is, your brain develops from kind of your brain stem up. It's the same mm-hmm. way that it happened evolutionarily. You know, you have your kind of like reptilian brain stem brain. Then you have your kind of mammalian emotional brain, and then you have your prefrontal cortex adult human brain. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see the world through, obviously, this, this prefrontal cortex. But that prefrontal cortex can't really access trauma that occurred when you, were, when you didn't have it, right? So it's not a habit in the sense of, like, I've been smoking rollies like a dummy, and that's a habit, right? Oh, actually, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's actually a more limbic habit, too because it's an addiction. I don't know. I don't know quite about that. Don't, 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 uh, don't, uh, <laughs> don't quote me on that, dear listener. Um, you're resolving the, the patterning of trauma in like deep in your nervous system by the way that you are repatterning it in the present moment. And so, you know, using a tool like mindfulness, for example, to not go down these like dark stories that actually kind of re like, like maintain the trauma pattern and said, you're like, Oh, I'll, I'll just release that. And I'll kind of meditate and I'll feel my feelings without telling a story that, that, that reinforces this kind of like nervous system projection onto the world. I think that's all as accurate as I understand it to be. Yeah. But again, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a professional in this realm. <laughs> Have you ever heard of uh, brain spotting? No. Yeah, that's a fun one. Uh, me and my girlfriend have done that a couple times. My therapist here in San Diego, shout out to Susanna. She's a pro at it. It's a, a relatively new therapy that comes from the EMDR family. Mm, I've done EMDR. But 
Yeah, it's insane. It's bas- it basically just requires you to look at a point. She, the therapist works with you to find what they call a brain spot. Um, and basically, this is a direction of that your eyes look that indicates it's triggering some trauma. And I'm, I'm also not a therapist and I'm also not a super well read on this stuff. I just know from my own experience. Um, but yeah, she works with you to see where it looks like your eye is fluttering or giving signals that would indicate to her that she's found the brain spot. And she has you hold it there as you're looking at this point and kind of processing the, the trauma you want to work through. Um, and yeah, it is, you, you experience a super massive relief, release of just emotion. Some people ball up, curl up into a ball and cry. Some people just start laughing, but yeah, it's, it's crazy, man. It's, they, they did it with Sandy Hook survivors, um, after the school shooting and they, they tested it against other therapies, like equestrian therapy, um, and other forms of therapy. I'm not super sure which ones, but it was by far the most effective therapy that they used on first responders, teachers, and children after the shooting, which is pretty cool. Oh, I will have to keep my eye on that. It's it's funny how new modalities kind of pop up in your life in new ways of thinking about things. I, I find it, life just has this wonderful way of kind of burping up what you need next. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was that way when I first discovered ayahuasca. I had again, ended a relationship and then was super distressed and brokenhearted afterwards. I was actually engaged to a woman like six or seven years ago and I was totally just wrecked. I was like, I knew I had to end it. I still was in love with her. You know, I just, and then she moved on and I was like, what have I done? Amen. You're a hopeless romantic dog. Uh, I wouldn't say hopeless. (laughs) I would say incorrigibly hopeful um, whilst, whilst putting myself through various challenges, but kind of a little bit analogous to the experience I'm having now. And in my like, where, what can I possibly grab onto space? A friend was like, out of the blue was like, do you know what ayahuasca is? You want to do, you want to just, I was like, I feel like I, that's like, that's like cool psychedelics. I don't really know much about it. He's like, you want to go to an ayahuasca ceremony with me? Like in two weeks? It's like, fuck. Yep. And uh, it's just funny. I, I think that there's two ways of going through life. And this is similar to the Einstein quote about miracles. But basically, there's two ways to go through life. You either don't trust it or you do trust it. And if you don't trust it, you're fucked. You're mm-hmm. a ship at sea. And if you lose your trust in the lived experience, you know, God have mercy on your soul. That is the most desolate place to be. But if you do trust it, and I think most people are somewhere in the middle, but if you trust it resolutely, then you can say basically like, it's not to be passive, but like everything that happens is an opportunity. It's as a, as a great therapist once said to me when I was in a pretty rough shape, maybe a decade and a half ago, was he gave me the mantra that life is a wonderful adventure and everything that you experience is a lesson, a blessing, or an opportunity. Hmm. And I, I think probably all three. Yeah. Um, what you're saying about trusting life or not trusting it kind of goes back to what you were saying about whenever you feel depression getting closer to it, right? Because you're kind of, as you mentioned, depression is a signal to you that you need to do some work. You need to pay attention to yourself. But if you're, if you resist that signal, then it's not going to get any better, right? It's kind of the same thing where you're going through life and you're either paying attention to the opportunities that are presented to you or you're just ignoring them and and kind of forcing your way through it. Well, I am not currently depressed. 
And if I were depressed, I would have a very different way of experiencing it. So depression is no joke. And a major serious depression, you know, your your logic and philosophy is no match for that bleakness. And so I definitely am not someone who's, who has the idea that you just think positively about it. But no, I can feel... Sorry to cut you off, but that's not what I, that's not what I, I don't want to be uh, misunderstood here. I, I didn't mean that you think positively to change that depression, but it's like a signal to you that you need to pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically the most helpful thing for my whole experience of depression, well, was probably meditation, but actually it was absolutely meditation, but the most positive reframing in, in my entire experience was this is my teacher and it is a difficult class to take and I don't know how it's going to go but I know that it's a teacher I know that when it comes it's teaching me something and it's not necessarily like I'm at a place right now where I can I can feel someone coming on like a little one and it's kind of like hiccups like I've got a good way of dealing with hiccups when they come on but I'm sort of like okay I'm gonna like you know get all of my self-care tools you know just marshal all my resources but I but I Deeper than that, I feel like if a depression comes in and it's there and you're going to be with it for a period of time and, you know, depression can be very scary, you know, mm. particularly, um, particularly if it leads to ideation around self-harm, but to recognize that like I am on a magical adventure and right now I'm being pulled into the underworld and I'm being pulled into the underworld for a reason. And so I, so I get down on my knees and I bow to this teacher and I'm just like, oh, God, I don't want to do this, but I guess I have to. And I haven't had a major depressive episode since 2015. And I was only in it for about four or five months. So it was like not so bad. But I'd say that like the separation, anxiety, and distress that I'm feeling in this moment is a totally different thing than depression. But it's definitely like a pretty, pretty rocky ride. But again, teacher, yeah. you know, portal opportunity there's I, I just can't think about it otherwise than that because it would just be too depressing <laughs> <laughs> but it's use i mean like you're saying it it's useful in the fact that it takes you to your next your next phase if you pay attention to it and treat it properly right and i know from my depression my experience with depression i you know I wanted to hurt myself a lot and I did try sometimes. And there was mornings I woke up and just like stood looking in the mirror after brushing my teeth, just punching myself in the head or hating who I was looking at. And, you know, I wonder just if my awareness of what I was dealing with would have changed the way in I, which I dealt with it. Does that make sense? Like the, during that time, I wasn't aware of how depression could be caused by something that you had not resolved in the past. I wasn't aware that I was holding on to this trauma from years before that was causing me to wake up angry every morning. So in that way, like if you have knowledge about what it is that you're going through and what it can teach you, then you can handle it better, right? When and you get that wisdom by going through it. Yeah. You know, like when when I think about the visits of depression in my life and specifically, I mean like major depressive experiences, they have made me so much humbler, so much more empathetic, so much more oriented towards building a robust life. I, I think that if I'd never, my first major depression happened when I was 17. So, um, 18, so about the same age as you. And, um, and I think there was some 
tendrils of it prior to that. But if that hadn't happened, dude, I'd be like an investment banker. <laughs> I mean, not, maybe not actually, but like the, the magical mystery tour that has been my life was absolutely seeded with my darkest, bleakest days. And so fuck yeah. Like, and, I, and, and if it, someone's listening right now and you are in the middle of a depression, none of this shit matters to you at all because you're in it and in mm-hmm. it is the worst. It's the Herman Hesse in the book uh, Steppenwolf, which is a great book about depression, by the way. Um, the, the band was named after this book. Beautiful book. Hmm. The book has like 150 pages of just the most ruthless first-person perspective of a severely depressed person. And then it like blossoms into magic at the end. And he has so many just vivid descriptions. He calls it an empty mud hell. Ugh. Hmm. My, my father, who's had very serious depression in his life, talks about it as a lead blanket that you're like, you have a lead blanket on you and you just like can't get out of it. I, uh, I once wrote a poem about how it's a small, dark creature that crawls into souls and hollows out holes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a dark one, but it's, but it's part of the, it's part of the festival. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the festival. Like what, it is. What have your depression's been caused by if you don't mind me prying since we're on we have yeah. totally abandoned my preparation yeah, we, here i'm just gonna trash it no 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 don't no, no, don't 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 trash it it might we, who knows it'll circle back i want to yeah. talk about festivals um i miss them um my first depression was triggered by i got sent to a emotional growth boarding school when I was 17 because I was like a bad kid and did a bunch of drugs. And I really believed in the program that they presented, which is just like so much intense group therapy and like going inside and like finding the things that are broken in you and then divulging them. But it was, it was tethered to a kind of reward system. So like if you were more divulging of your pain experience, especially crying, you actually got more privileges in this weird school I went to. Hmm. So like by the time I was, you know, in what was called upper school, the school right before the leadership school, I was already like running a building, running a committee and like essentially like about to be the head of student government. And I was just like accruing these, these, these privileges. And it wasn't entirely just because of crying in therapy, but that was a piece of it. Right. And so I just like, I wanted to win. I wanted to like beat the game. And the game at that time was to like do the most fucking emotional growth work you could do. So I would just like dive deep to find anything that I could cry about. And a day came where it didn't work. And I reached inside myself and I found nothing. Hmm. And it was a split second and all the color drained out of the room. It happened in a moment. And it just Hmm. like, I went like so deep down into a depression so immediately. And because I'd done such a good job of all the things they told me to do, the school just kind of left me alone and like didn't make me do anything. So I spent my last like six months at the school playing guitar by myself in my dorm pretty much and like kind of going to some classes. And like, it was a, it was a very odd time. And I, I ended up going on SSRIs and that wasn't the right thing for me. So there was a, a sort of a rocky period with that. But, you know, I'm here now and I'm very grateful. But you know, I, I definitely, especially in psychedelic journeys, I definitely spend time going back and giving that, giving that angsty young man a hug. Yeah. And be like, just hold on. You have no idea how majestic your adventure will be. Just hold on. And I go back and I hug him. Huh. And I like to think that he, I like to think that there were moments in my life when the depression cleared a little bit that I didn't know why. And it was actually like future Eamon coming and being like, just hold on, baby. 
just hold on. It's going to be so good. Yeah. I don't doubt it, man. I love the, the circular time theory stuff, man. That's, that's my jam. Um, that's, that seems super counterintuitive, man, that you would be diving super deep into yourself, looking for things to be upset about, to emotional traumas to deal with, and it would lead you to become actually depressed. Doesn't that well, seem counterintuitive? Fa- oh, well, it was fake. false. Okay. I mean, they weren't fake, but I was like performing. Gotcha. Grief. I was like finding anything that I could work with that would make myself. I was like, I was trying to manipulate my own system. And, and of course I think it was also like, like I said, I think there were, there was aspects of depression that were coming in before. That's part of why I was doing all the drugs and like messing up. And, you know, I also had a, a deep wound around my sexuality and my confusion around my sexuality. I had a deep wound about my relationship with my father as a child. There was all sorts of shit at play. Mm-hmm. And then I was in this extremely, frankly, irresponsible personal growth boarding school where untrained professionals were pushing kids to like have extreme emotional experiences that were then unintegrated. It was, it was a, it was a fucking circus. So <laughs> um, you, you said your father was uh, depressed too. So that, yeah, yeah we, got family. It, we got it all over. Yeah. All through. And I, and I'm, I'm into these days, I'm into the uh, idea of ancestral trauma and epigenetic markers and I don't know enough about the epigenetic thing. I, don't, I can't speak about it in scientific language, even though it's a scientific thing. But basically that we have genes and then our epigenes are actually, they're not our genes, but they're things that turn genes on and off and that you can kind of turn on a proclivity for depression or like turn it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and psych- they're doing, I say they, actually my former psychiatrist, Dr. David Rabin, and some others are doing a, a massive study on uh, psychedelics and epigenetic markers. Hmm. Um, super interesting stuff. That's cool. I saw he was on uh, Tim Ferriss recently. That's tight. Was it? Was that? Did well, that have something to do with uh, that research? Yeah. Well. Well, Tim Ferriss was actually on their psychedelic hour clubhouse. Oh, okay. Okay. And I was on it too because I asked a question. I saw that. Um, yeah. I. I was. Uh, yeah. I, I felt pretty cool to have my voice on the Tim Ferriss show since it's been so influential <laughs> for me. That's cool, man. I'm glad that you have come out of that experience uh, the way you did, and that now you're going back and giving your younger self some pats on the back. That's, that's good, man. I am so grateful for a perspective of, okay, how do I want to say this? Because it's so alive for me right now. Cause I'm like it going through it right now. I have such an unflinching epistemological optimism and it is so steadfast now that when shit goes down, I just meet it. You know, like I did a BOGO with the Buiti people in Gabon. That was gnarly as fuck. It was hard as fuck, but I loved it because I just met it and I met it. And like right now I'm working with early childhood trauma through the lens of saying goodbye to the woman that I thought I'd spend my life with. That's fucking hard, but I'm going to go do some solo camping and give it up to nature and see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's all still a festival. It's all still this magical pageantry of life that I have the, the enormous privilege to get to participate with. And there's this Hafiz poem that's been really resonating with me lately where the first line is, I hold the lion's paw whenever I dance. Mm. You know, like 
So you could dance with it. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about festivals? Talk <laughs> I, about? Was, I was going to just swing it back, but uh, swing it yeah. back. Let's just swing it back. Have festivals played a role in your your growth in terms of your emotional and like what what has that role been? What festivals have been most pivotal for you? Yeah. So. Burning Man, Burning Man, Burning Man, and also Burning Man. <laughs> also Africa Burn, also the Nordic Burn, also Burning Man Parties. Burning Man culture has has given to me so much. And let me give a shout out to your listeners. If you have the means, donate the cost of a Burning Man ticket to Burning Man right now because they need it. And if they can't come back next year, they need our support. So if you have the means, donate to the Burning Man organization for God's sake. I first went to Burning Man in 2010, and I was like, I'd had a bunch of like good reframes right before that. Like I stopped blaming my dad for all my problems. That super helped. I started taking an amino acid supplement called SAM-E, which Hmm. was great for my mental health. It, It helped with my methylation cycle. So like what I believe happens in my brain is that my brain has a harder time creating the neurochemicals that make me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have to work harder to create them. And this particular e- amino acid is part of that process. And so it, it actually helps. 5-HTP is as well. 5-HTP okay. ha- is like the, the closest serotonin precursor. I don't know, but I feel that's part of it. So I discovered that. I went to South America with my mom and I met a shaman who blew tobacco in my face. And I feel like that was part of it. And then I moved <laughs> to San Francisco and I started a funky dance band called I Can Dress Myself. And I started like, if I don't blame my dad for all my problems, what life do I want to live? And I was like, oh, I want a funky dance band in San Francisco. So like all of that was in the milieu. And then my friend was like, let's go to Burning Man. Cause that's like, we got this cool dance music we're doing. Like everybody's going to Burning Man to do this. Let's go to Burning Man. And went to Burning Man. And a huge part of my suffering in my life has been around gender and sexuality. I definitely have a female inside me. I'm, I'm primarily male. Primarily, I'm primarily heterosexual male. I don't feel trans at all, but I actually have like a girl part of me. And my relationship to her has been a huge part of my life and growth. Hmm. And when I was a little boy, I, I got the thing that, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I got the thing that kind of everybody gets, which is like, you're gay, that's gay. Gay is the worst thing. You don't want to be gay. Anything feminine is gay. And so I had a lot of wounding around this fear of being gay, this desire not to be gay, which essentially meant anything feminine, which meant like, the color purple, which I love, which meant like singing, which I love, which meant dancing, which meant all these things I love that I that I then had to exile for myself. Hmm. And when I first went to Burning Man, it was the first time that I truly saw that gay straight binary upended. People at Burning Man, like they weren't like gay or straight. They're just a bunch of fabulous weirdos doing whatever the fuck they wanted. And they were cool. And I really wanted to be cool for a lot of my life. And I was just like watching these men gallivanting around in like flowing gowns and these floppy (laughs) hats. And I was just like, and they were so cool. Mm -hmm. They were like David Bowie cool. And I'd never seen that before. And I'd never been invited into that before. And so for me, that's a huge part of what festival culture has been in my life over the past decade is the opportunity to just play and express and let these, these really like repressed parts of myself out in the world. And I think that's it was extraordinarily helpful for my mental health. I think also just like doing a shit ton of psychedelics in the desert was probably mostly good for my mental health. <laughs> yeah. More more or less. I mean, give 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 a give a little take a little, but 
Yeah, I, I, and and just being in an environment that felt as free and magical and otherworldly as Burning Man, I consider discovering Burning Man and discovering ayahuasca as two uh, thresholds in my life that were like particularly fantastical, like reminded me that life is magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and Burning Man was like, oh my God, this is a magical place where you can just be magic. And it was just so healing. And for when I first got back from Burning Man, for literally two weeks, I was like, I will never be afraid again. I'm just never going to be afraid. I'll just do whatever the fuck I want. Mm-hmm. And I'll just be fabulous and weird and playful and all the things that matter most in my heart of hearts, in my most intimate places. But of course, that's not the way life works. Yeah. Life doesn't give you a one and done. You get, you get the vision and then you do the work. And you kind of go back a little bit and then you get another vision and you kind of do the work. So, but yeah, I, all praise to Black Rock City for the bounty it's brought me and so many others. Yeah. What do you think specifically it was about, I mean, you already said that seeing the example of people that you kind of wanted to emulate was massive for you in releasing a lot of the trauma and uh, embracing this true self of yours that you wanted to see. But what is it about Burning Man that allows them to do that that allows everyone to do that that isn't present in society like is it just the rules and the all of the principles yeah principles that we have in society that are keeping people from experiencing that true self like what what is so special about burning man that makes that accessible well well, burning man is certainly a positive feedback loop so i'm sure that you know as i saw men liberated from traditional gender roles and experimented, so too then others see that in me, right? There's a couple things about Burning Man that make it so special. One is the 10 principles are pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the idea of creating a decommodified space is a, is a strong one. Getting out of the I-it transactional relationships into the I-thou like connected relationships, that's um, a philosopher named Martin Berber, maybe? I-it, I-thou? But if you're not having to toggle between a transactional interaction and a personal interaction, you I feel like you open more. You don't have to, you're not like this membrane that's like slamming shut and opening and slamming shut and opening. That membrane actually gets to like really expand. So I think you're much more receptive to others and you're much more receptive to what you're seeing. I also like that Burning Man is an earned adventure. Mm-hmm. It's definitely type two fun. It's a pilgrimage. You have to go out in the middle of nowhere. And my friend Josh has this great line about Burning Man, which is contrived hardship to expedite bonding. So you like have this like, it's, you're a bunch of, you know, mostly privileged people living in these kind of atomized lives where, you know, you've got your air conditioning and you get in your car and, you know, it's like life has kind of taken away uh, or the structure of modern capitalism has kind of taken away some of the rough edges of life that actually enliven you. And so to go out in the desert and, and really experience battling against the dust storms and having to ratchet down your tent and, and huddling in an art piece, all that stuff I think creates a heightened experience and a heightened availability for learning and exploring and changing your mind state. Mm -hmm. I mean, I very much see Burning Man as, as a kind of acid experience. Like it, I mean, we do acid there, but it's also like its own <laughs> trip, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of heightened experiences. And I think it's also just like, it's the particular mythos of that place. It's that way because we think it's that way. So we show up and make it that way, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, you got to believe in it. 
And when people stop believing in Burning Man, oh, Burning Man has changed and it's not good enough. Well, show up and make it what you like and it'll be good. Complain about what it's not and stay home or, you know, shit all over it. Like you're hastening it towards exactly the thing you don't want it to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. Do you think Burning Man has changed? 100%. Yeah. It changes every year. That's the mm-hmm. whole point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an iterative experiment in community. Mm-hmm. Every year it's torn down and built back up. And it ref- and it's not different than the world. It reflects the place it's in. You know, there is racism in the world. There is major issues around whiteness in the Bay Area and in the U.S. And that is magnified. You know, again, like an acid trip, Burning Man's a bit of a nonspecific amplifier. The racial issues in the U.S. end up actually being kind of amplified at Burning Man because people <laughs> come in with their unconscious biases, try to create a new world, and accidentally kind of create the old world so it's not it's not a perfect place it's not a place that is utopic or free from all the other shit it's not that there aren't billionaires you know it's it's a more it's 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 a more intense version of what's already happening particularly in its region which in this case its region really is primarily the bay area as it's as it's as it's like main hub more so than reno in terms of culture so of course you get like the billionaires and the you know, and the Instagram influencers and all that drama. And so every year it changes. And is it worse? I mean, I don't know. I mean, was it was it horrible when I went in 2010? No, it was the best thing I ever saw. But that might have been horrible to someone who went in 2000 and it changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life just changes. Shit just changes. And, yeah. and one of the things that's great about Burning Man culture is there's all the regionals. There's Burning Man is three things. It's Burning Man, which is the Black Rock City event. It's the Burning Man organization, which is the group that creates that event as well as other initiatives. And then it's the global culture. And the cat's out of the bag on the global culture. It's just a global culture now. It's it's mutating and morphing in in Sweden and in Israel and in all of these other places. Well, I want to go back to something you mentioned about it being a reflection of society cuz before we talked, I had this kind of question in my mind. I, let's let's not forget the original discussion point was how can Burning Man or festival culture at large maybe help us navigate uh, this moment in general and this moment right now that we're going through in society, um, particularly with the calls of you know police brutality and um, social justice. Crime is like a central thing to all that stuff, right? That crime is causing police interactions, which is leading to videos that we see and are terrified by. So I was like, well, how much crime happens in Burning Man versus the US? And this is really interesting. This is very interesting. So in 2018, did the math. I had a couple of friends who were way smarter than me check my math to make sure I was doing this right. But the rate of arrests, and this is just arrests, not crime actually, but the daily rate of arrests per 1,000 people in Burning Man last year was 0.085 arrests per 1,000. Can you guess what the rate of arrests is in the U.S. at large? 0.085 per 1,000 in 2018. Literally wow. almost exactly the same. Yeah. That, that kind of blew my mind and because I was expecting it to be less in Burning Man. I was expecting there to be because I, I guess I, I've only been once and I kind of in a way do view it as utopian. It is 
to me a sacred place. It seems different than society. It is different than our daily society. And so I was just surprised by that. And I wonder what thoughts you have on that similarity. Yeah, well, I wouldn't necessarily extrapolate anything precise from that necessarily because, okay, if you look at Burning Man, it's crawling with cops. There's like sheriffs, there's like FBI, there's like BLM. There's, they all know there's a shit ton of drugs there and they're like trying to like get at that. So I think that it might might be interesting. Sorry, BLM, just to clarify, since we're talking about Black Lives Matter, you mean Bureau Bureau of of Land Land Management. Management. Yeah, Yeah, Bureau of Land Management. I think what might be helpful if you wanted to go deeper on these numbers is to look at like rates of death, look at different kinds of crimes, look at, you know, just kind of explore some different I mean, I'm not, I'm not really like a statistics numbers guy, but I think it'd be interesting to take different data, data sets around this issue and kind of see, because the fact that the, the, the numbers are exactly the same, I don't know that I would then say, oh, well, Burning Man's exactly the same, because there's, I think there's different factors in play in different ways. Yeah. And also it kind of depends like what, you know, why are you doing that work? What are you trying to, con- what, are you, what conclusion are you hoping to get? What are you, what are you hoping to learn from it? My initial hope was to find that in a place where there feels to be less structure and that there's more openness and courage, that those numbers would be lower. But like you said, the way that police are policing that festival is much different than how they're policing a city in general. So I I don't know. I My initial thought was to just compare, say if the world was if society was to just fall apart, if U.S. society was to just disintegrate and in the vacuum, something like Burning Man became our new society, would that be better? Or would would it be less crime-filled? Would it be better overall? That was kind of just the question Ooh. in general. Oh, that's a big old question. I think this is above my pay grade. Um, if society collapsed and then in the wake of it, it turned into something like Burning Man, I feel like that'd be a pretty nice result of society collapsing. I feel like society (laughs) collapsing is probably going to go a lot worse than that. And, you know, I think it's interesting, but I don't think that I have anything interesting to say about it. Yeah, okay, that's (laughs) fair. You know, like I think that that's a great question to ask someone who knows numbers in a different way than I do. Yeah, fair. And you can take it out or not, I don't mind. Yeah. It's just interesting to wonder about how how do people act in Burning Man towards each other versus society? And in that number of arrest rates, obviously you're getting people who are doing drugs and not hurting anybody else. But I was just trying to get a picture of, it, are people better people whenever they go to Burning Man than whenever they are in society? I don't know. And that's a tricky question. I mean, I think if you wanted to run that experiment, I would look just at what people are getting arrested for and like try to try to get more data. The broader question of whether people are better people at Burning Man. I don't know. And I don't know that it necessarily matters. Why not? Why don't you think so? Well, there's a lot in all of that. I mean, what is a better person? Like, what does that mean? And, and uh, I don't know. I, I, most of the things that I speak on, I like to, I like to like feel like I kind of have some bearing, but I just don't really have any bearing okay. on it. And yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> All good. Well, 
yeah, I feel like come to a stopping point here. Wait, we're stopping now. It's been 90 minutes too. Well, yeah, but we, but we, but we, I mean, we, we didn't quite stick the landing. Yeah, we we did. we got into we got into numbers I didn't understand and then and then we sort of well this is an interesting point as, as a podcaster because I can sometimes get to a place where I feel a little bit stuck mm-hmm. and energetically when that happens I can feel like a lot of like I lose a lot of energy and because I'm like trying to, I'm corralling the conversation in a certain way and then we <laughs> get to a place and I'm like fuck I've, I've kind of lost it I don't know if that's if you're feeling yeah. that oh, at this yeah. moment for yeah? sure yeah yeah and yeah. so well. <laughs> So don't abandon it. All right. Let's let's see what there is to learn in this moment. Okay. No, there's there's no mistake. It's a, it's an emergent experience. You know, we got to a place where like it wasn't quite clicking. Not between you and I personally, but in terms of like conversationally, kind of lost it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, in the evolving podcaster that you are becoming, mm-hmm. how is this? in this exact moment, a lesson that you can be enormously grateful for. How do you want to use this moment to expand your finesse as a podcaster? That's a good question. May I give you a suggestion? I would love a lifeline right now. (laughs) Yeah. So first of all, get in your body. Deep breath, shake a little, just change it up. Change, change up because because that kind of halting is like it's like yeah. so you gotta like sh- you gotta like shift it shake yeah, it out for sure we've you know and and I, obviously I'm fine going over ninety minutes you wanted to talk to me we've gone deep on some really cool things particularly mm-hmm. mental health which I think it's great considering both of our backgrounds that we talked about there's a lot of other cool things to talk to me about so you have me right now that's um, true and. Uh, don't worry about the edit. You'll make it work. You'll figure it out in the edit. You can, you know, you'll cut and paste. Maybe, maybe this moment of the podcast right now that we're having right now, maybe this is the most interesting part of the podcast and maybe it stays. Who knows? It's yours. It's your yeah. podcast. And you can always clean up or throw things away in the edit. So it doesn't matter. In real time, you don't have to get it right, right? You just, I, I'm here. I'm with you. Yeah. I definitely got a little like, uh, I don't really understand when we were talking about like the numbers. The numbers, yeah. I just, there was nowhere I could go with it. Yeah. But I'm not in any way defeated. Like I'm, I'm here and I'm still going. Nice. So uh, I'm glad you're glad you're still with me, man. Yeah, of course. And I, and actually I think that this moment is actually very interesting because we're both podcasters and moments like these, I did a podcast recently where I was speaking to someone I admired enormously and we were talking about sovereignty personal sovereignty and just as i'm like right in it someone opens the door and we're recording in the music studio at wildwood and he's a guy i don't know that well well let me just say like he has his ideas of what things should be and he interrupts and then instead of being like oh sorry he's like you know guys this is the music room so like and then he just shuts the door and walks out like (laughs) as if it was weird that we were doing a podcast in the music space and i was so I was so mad at him. I was immediately, I was like, you, like you, like here I was talking about sovereignty and then, oh, he knocked me off my sovereignty. In the moment, I was talking to my guest about sovereignty. So what did we do? Pretty quickly, we were like, we just talked about it. We talked about how he knocked me off my sovereignty and we actually got a teaching moment about the very topic we were discussing in real time Mm -hmm. on the podcast. 
So I'm publishing that podcast tomorrow. And of course I'm keeping that part in. Yeah. There, it was never a question of take, I'm definitely not taking this out. I'm happy to share with people my, uh, failures as well as my success. Failure, nothing, not a failure. <laughs> you're, was, you're was, maybe but, foible. But, it was just interesting because I, in prepping for this, I found this so interesting and I was like, Ooh, this is going to be, this is going to, oh. we're going to talk about this thing so oh. deeply. We're going to, we're going to like, Oh, so you had, you, this. I, so this wasn't just a question. This was something that already had a story attached to it. I know. There was an yeah, expectation of, uh, yeah. of something that was going to go here. And instead it actually went the opposite. Like yeah. I didn't connect to it at all. Yeah. And so yeah. that probably brought up some feelings. Yeah, it definitely did. I just wanted to run away pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. But you're staying. Yeah. You're not running away. No. How does it feel to stay and want to run away at the same time? It feels good to get past that initial urge to bury my head in the sand for sure. I feel... I. I am grateful now that I am still here for sure. Eric, do you know how badly I want to run away from the experience that I'm having right now? Not with you, but like in my in life with yeah. the separation. Mm -hmm. Do you know how desperately, how panicked I get when I just, when I just want her back so bad? Mm -hmm. I just want to run away. That is where the most growth happens. Yeah. Because the reason that I am no longer with this incredible woman is because I was not fully anchored in my own self-worth. I was projecting onto her the validation that I needed, which made me hypersensitive to her and, and really was a huge piece of our constant conflicts. And that was because I couldn't sit with the discomfort of her maybe not me thinking that she didn't love me the way I needed her to because I didn't have that love in myself. And so now I'm in this place in Seattle, mostly by myself, and I want to run away so fucking badly. I just, I want to call her so badly. But every time I don't, every time I just do some breath work, do some yoga, every time I ride that wave all the way over, something happens in me where I'm building this trust with my little boy and I'm like, it's okay, <laughs> we can do this. Yeah. That intolerable sensation, it's not intolerable. Mm -hmm. And every single time I ride that wave, I'm getting stronger. And, you know, not that it's exactly analogous to the experience that you're having in this moment, but here we are, that sensation of wanting to run away is dissipating. Mm-hmm. And in its wake, there's a strength of the person who didn't run away. The person who ran away just died because the yeah. person who didn't run away stayed. And that part of you that wanted to run away, you shed that. You shed, you shed a little bit of that. Well, I appreciate you not obliging my desire to run away because it, I, I it was so I, abrupt. <laughs> I know. I was just like, I, I just looked at my notes and I was like, well, none of these matter anymore. So let's just, uh, end it. And you know, that having stayed, I mean, I've had a podcast before that didn't go very well. And I kind of did a similar thing where I didn't, 
you know, we had almost reached our allotted time and I was like, okay, well, I don't really have any more questions. And it was a very lame ending that I was completely unsatisfied with. And it was kind of a bigger guest, you know, I, I, uh, afterwards that feeling of just being like, wow, you totally chickened out of that moment and you totally just gave in to your like fear of running away. That felt really bad. And I can just picture myself now, if that had happened here, I would feel like shit, but I'm chilling. Well, there's an important thing in that too, because, okay, this is, I'm doing some work around fear and around, like I was a terrified little boy, right? And so, and that fear was not empowered. I wasn't told, oh, you're so scared. I'm so sorry. That must be so hard for you. Let me be with you while you're scared. That's actually part, like one of the most essential pieces of what was so difficult for me as a little boy was to be so scared and to feel so alone in that fear. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. What I'm learning now is that I have to join my, my fear is in that, that little boy part of myself. So I have to join that fear and I have to be with that. So we cause more harm on ourselves by the meanness after the thing that happened. Mm-hmm. You're Mm -hmm. having, we've had an incredible podcast. I've had a lovely time. The fact that we had a little like moment (laughs) does in no way invalidate it to me. I don't think it's, and and for you as a podcaster, you could give it a little wrap up, cut that out. You know, nobody's going to be the wiser. It's just your, it's just your relationship (laughs) to yourself. Yeah. And so this is similar to like not running away. It's like, how do we change the script in that moment? Like in that moment, oh, I fucked up. Oh, that was so good, and it just ended. It's like, hey, no, hey, I understand. Oh, you feel that way. I love you, though. You, did, you actually did a really great job. Yeah. It's okay that that happened. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And you just talk to yourself. I do that shit so much these days. I just talk to little Eamon, and I'm just like, yeah, you're scared. You're lonely. You miss her. It's hard. I know. I'm here. All the things that I wanted to hear when I was little, mm-hmm. I say to myself, every day right now only whenever you're feeling the fear or even whenever things are good oh that's an interesting point i i celebrate myself but you know oh oh nicely done you i um (laughs) i hadn't really thought about it that way i mean i celebrate myself but i definitely don't do the same i don't necessary i i do a little bit like i do a little like you did a good job but when i'm really like fully aligned i actually don't feel like my little boy needs it so i don't necessarily like explicitly give it to him so that's actually an interesting thing to explore i wonder what that might feel like to do that same process of hey you did so good (laughs) yeah I, I, i yeah i i guess i feel like i'm so focused on the piece that I want to heal, that I'm utilizing a therapeutic tool for healing, but I'm not necessarily potentiating the positivity by grounding it deeply. Yeah. That might be something to I'm going to try it. I, I honestly have never taken the time to, um, you know, coddle or reaffirm the child in myself in the way that you've mentioned in this podcast. And, I can see the value in that because 
you know, just this experience that just happened right now. I was ready to kind of listen to that, as I mentioned before, that fear and not talk to it as a grown up or not talk to it as an adult who cares about it, you know, to kind of just go with it. It's like when a kid throws a temper tantrum or something, you just give it what it, give the kid what it wants. It's not learning anything. It's learning something bad, if anything, right? You need to. And so, yeah, I appreciate you kind of bringing this perspective into my, uh, my life today, man. That's like why I podcast. (laughs) <laughs> I like I like the I like the vulnerability of the real human experience of creating together. There's there's an amazing quote from James Carse who actually died this week. Hmm. Um, James Carse, incredible philosopher, wrote the book Finite and Infinite Games. Have you heard of this book? No. Oh my god, must read. Top five. Basically, the whole book is broken down into finite and infinite games, and anything can be looked at as a game that is finite that is played to end the game and win, or infinite, which is a game that's played to create more games. Mm. And he breaks down everything about life. And, it, and it's obvious, like, you want to play infinite games. You want to be in that mindset. And he does a breakdown about infinite players and finite players and openness and vulnerability. And the quote is, and it's actually a guiding principle of my podcast, which is, infinite players play in complete openness. It's not openness as in candor. It's openness as in vulnerability. Mm. And it's not about exposing the fixed self that has always been, but it's about revealing and therefore kind of creating the dynamic self that is yet to be. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Well, I, I wish I I wish I just had it to read to you because I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of biffing the end of it. But I, I I'll do it in my own words. Um, okay. So infinite players play in complete openness. It's not about I'm open with you by revealing who I really am, and that's a fixed thing that I'm now revealing to you. Mm. By playing in complete openness, I'm actually creating the dynamic self that I have yet to be. I'm, that dynamic mm. self is emerging and evolving in every moment through the very process of openness. Mm. So I'm not being open to reveal something that is... Uh, okay, here's my deep secret. Now you know me. You know, By having this conversation in the way that we're having, we're actually learning about ourselves in real time and our dynamic future selves are being born in every moment by virtue of our openness. Hmm. I like that. It's, Shout it's, out to James Cars. That's good. This reminds me of like uh, if there was water in some sort of vessel that was changing, the water would flow into that empty space and kind of grow with it, right? Well, yeah. And like, we just had a moment that was where you got stalled and mm-hmm. had an emotional and seemed like also like a, a nervous system response. To <laughs> oh yeah. Deer in the headlights straight up. Yeah. We stayed. And so that had a transformative effect on you to a certain degree and see how that plays out. See what you think about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Then also while we're talking about this, I'm extolling the virtues of soothing my inner child and you who no one has actually ever said this to me was like, well, but do you do the same thing when you celebrate? And I never even fucking thought, I don't know why I never (laughs) thought about that. And there's a sort of like, now there's a new emergent possibility Mm -hmm. that comes out of that moment. And it came directly out of sticking with your moment that then gave me that moment. And I find that whole thing, that whole process just so 
confirming mm-hmm. of just the beauty and the fractal emergence of life as like I think about life as this kind of like evolving fractal thing where it just keeps sort of growing and changing and it's aware it is itself doing it and it doesn't know where it's going because it's just go it's just happening and that we are consciously aware of this because we have these homo sapien brains that can kind of be aware of it but that all of life is doing this as one grand sort of orchestra concurrently and when we make the choice to be honest and open and kind, we make the choice to be courageous in the face of what's happening. We're, we're kind of leaning into the evolution of all of life. Hmm. I like that. For, the, for, those, for those of you listening, my assumption is that Eric will keep this part in the show. You're not obligated yeah. to, but my assumption is that you will. And we're towards the end of, you know, we're over 90 minutes, so you will have stuck with us this far. Yeah. I wonder, you at home... Oh, listener, I wonder what is happening for you in observing this in the intimacy of audio on your walk with your earbuds in whatever. <laughs> like what's ha- what's what is it in your life that you want to stay with when you would usually run away? Mm-hmm. And what might happen if you did? What might happen if you stayed with it? Maybe this was that moment for them, that awkwardness that they just went through. <laughs> Well, I, I think we're sticking the landing. Yeah, I do too, man. Much better than it was uh, 20 minutes ago. <laughs> it's all part of it. Yeah. It's all part of it. How are you feeling? Great. A little hot. Any, it's hot in my yeah. apartment, but maybe that's just any, also me. Any reverberations of it? What do you mean? Like, uh, do you, do you feel, do you feel any kind of tension in your system or does it feel kind of released? It feels mostly released. There is a slight, like, lingering disappointment of just like not having stuck the landing that I envisioned for myself. But then there's also kind of a self satisfaction of having not run away from the moment and gotten something good out of it. Two things. One, this will feel very different when you like sleep on it and then listen to it. And there's definitely ways you can kind of present it, but still clean it up if that makes you more comfortable or you could present it all as is, whatever you want to do. So one thing is like, you'll feel, you'll feel interestingly about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. But in this moment, you, you got activated in some way during this. And what I find to be really helpful and what I suggest maybe trying after, the, after you, we close here is shaking. Have you ever done any like trauma shaking? No. Oh, it's no. great. So when a, when a lion is about to catch a deer and then the deer gets away, li- uh, antelope, I don't know what if lions eat deers. <laughs> An- the antelope gets away and the antelope is safe. As soon as the antelope is safe, it will do this like crazy weird shaking thing. It'll just like do this. Weird, and I think all animals do this, but hmm. basically their nervous systems have gotten so activated in the f- the fight or flight, in this case, flight. And they naturally then reset their nervous systems by doing like this really elaborate shake of their bodies. Hmm. And I find that it's an it's a really powerful way because for humans, we have fight, flight, or freeze responses to social 
experiences because it's it's wired into our brains that life and death is connected to social validation. Mm-hmm. If the tribe does not include you and you're left out in the cold, you will die. So we have an evolutionary impulse to take social interaction with the seriousness with which a gazelle, that's what I meant, a gazelle, a gazelle might respond to the experience of a lion chasing them. We don't have lions chasing us, but we have a constant steady drip of anxiety producing social interactions on social media, et cetera. Great thing to do, be like the gazelle. Shake it out. Hmm. I'm going to do it right now. Do it right now. Get get up, get up and get up and wiggle. I said, get, get, get up and wiggle. Get oh, get up get and up. just right. do do a whole crazy one, thing. One second. Make it weird. Make it super <laughs> weird. That okay, how does that feel? That felt real good. Yeah, right. It's so <laughs> yeah. good. That felt great. I like that. I going to add it to my uh, my repertoire. So great when you get a new tool. It's like a video game. You're like, oh shit, I'm use this on the next time I have to fight that boss. <laughs> I just got. Bre- I just started adding Wim Hof breath work to some of Ooh. the. Yeah, I have. I have like vagal nerve, like so much anxiety in my stomach, and you know, I wake up at four in the morning feeling like crap because I'm going through a breakup, and then I do Wim Hof breathing. And I just, just meet it because I got a new tool. He, he has an app. Have you uh, downloaded it? I do. That? I'm yeah. using the app. Yeah. yeah I like I to track d- my shit. I, yeah, me too. I, I uh, did that before hopping on here with you, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, isn't that funny? Yep. <sighs> well, shall I, shall I tell the listeners where they can find me? Yes, please do. Please do. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> anticipated the the traditional podcast clothing closing okay so um uh my podcast life is a festival is my personal podcast and it's the one that actually the psychedelic therapy one's getting actually getting its own audience these days but that's kind of the one that i do the journeys about myself talk a lot about these subjects not just festivals and then i also do another podcast for maya health which is a psychedelic software company making uh, software for therapists to use to support psychedelic healing, um, which I'm very proud of being a part of. Um, And I do a podcast for them, for us, called the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. And um, you can find out whatever you want about me at aimandarmstrong.com. And you can follow me on Instagram because it's nice when people follow you on Instagram. I don't follow Mm -hmm. that many people on Instagram, but you can follow me on Instagram. (laughs) And then maybe if I met you, then I'll follow. I mean, anyway. I didn't stick the landing on that. Now I just sound like an <laughs> asshole. Follow me on Instagram, but I won't follow you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's transactional. <laughs> Super transactional. Yeah, it's like the people listening are just like, this guy seems really cool and really together. Did he just say he wouldn't follow me back? What? Ruined <laughs> it. Nope, not getting any followers off that one. Got none. <laughs> Zero followers. Why was I on this podcast if I don't get any Instagram followers? God damn it. Pointless. Well, thank no, it wasn't you. pointless, man. I had a great time. Yeah. I really enjoyed yeah. it. And I'm glad you stuck with it. And I'm glad we stuck with it. Same. And we got to have that deeper experience and drop a layer deeper with each other. I really appreciated that. I appreciate the fact that you took the time. You're gracious with your time for me. And yeah, like I said at the top, man, your podcast is dope. I think you're an awesome host. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. 
Well, I think you're a great host as well. And I appreciate Thank you having you. me on your show. And I'm excited to hear, you know, send me a message about how this is landing in the next next day or two. Yeah, I will, man. All right. Pleasure talking to you, Eric. Likewise, Eamon.